Thanks for downloading Dark Histories. Before we start, I just want to throw out a few ways that you can get involved and help support the show. We have a Patreon, Amazon Booklist, Coffee, and Audible affiliate link. So if you're interested in supporting, hopefully you can find a way that best suits you. All of the links for those things can be found either in the show notes or over on the website at darkhistories.com. Of course, just continuing to spread the word about the show on social media, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends is also a huge help. So thank you to everyone for all that. All right, enough of this. Let's crack on with the episode. The witch trials throughout medieval Europe have become renowned for their relentless, brutal torture and widespread execution. Whether floated as a form of class warfare, patriarchal dominance or religious persecution, the stories that remain are pitch black with their depictions of callous violence. Likewise, the legacy of the medieval Inquisition is also one of severe brutality and overzealous, corrupt authoritarians crushing those with differing beliefs and lifestyles. Despite this, there is one story from history of a group of individuals in northern Italy that whilst crossing over with both the Inquisition and the witch trials, somehow came out the other side with relatively few casualties. So unbelievable were the stories that came from the individuals involved that the Inquisitors themselves wrote many off as simple fantasists in the face of their sincere admissions. Known as the Benandanti, this was a group of people whose story was truly one of the strangest in the myth, legends and lore of historical witchcraft. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark Histories Season 4 Episode 9. I hope this episode finds you all healthy and well and in good spirits. Things are getting a little bit grindy now, aren't they? But, you know, light at the end of the tunnel and all that. So, yeah, I hope it finds you in good spirits. This is Episode 9, which is madness because... I feel like it was episode one last week and it's really funny like doing the episodes and reading out which episode it is every couple of weeks. I, I'm finding like I'm really able to see how quickly this year's tearing past, which is maybe a good thing. <laughs> so yeah, anyway, welcome. Today's episode is a really fun one, really weird one. Again, pretty out there, I think. So Let's crack on. Uh, first of all, obviously, of course, as always, I just want a massive thank you to all the people who support the show, all the patrons, um, you know, for keeping it running, essentially. Um, all the new patrons, uh, we've got Lucinda the Wolf, Evie, Kate, Mary, Emily, Andrea, Vanessa, Liza, I can't read this name. Oh, I'm so terrible. Um, Lisa and Sally. I think it's Lisa. It could be. It could be Lisa. I don't know. If you let me know if I've done that really wrong and I'll whip myself appropriately later. Uh, Paradelphia, Michael, Nyla, Mark, Amy, Karen, Anna, Brad and Carlin. So thanks very much. You know, jumping on board at, at, during this time especially is, is, is really, um, you know, I, very much appreciated and thank you to all the patrons as always and thank you to everyone who supports the show for example like uh, there's a reddit a subreddit that's actually you know um might be interesting for you guys anyway called our podcasts that i kind of stalk um quite a bit just to really i not really to promote this podcast although i do that a little bit mostly i just do it to get recommendations of new shows that i want to listen to personally and like, you know, I saw someone the other day say, oh, does anyone know a podcast that's, um, and they basically summed up Dark Histories, right? And, um, you know, I saw a post saying like, oh, Dark Histories podcast, you should listen to that. And I was like, yeah, cool. I don't have to do it because someone else has done it for me already. So, you know, if that was you, thank you very much. You know, I really appreciate that. All that kind of support is amazing because I'm really bad at that. So, yeah, thanks very much for, you know, sharing the show around and just helping out, leaving reviews ratings and sort of recommendations around the internet is is just hugely helpful because I say that's to be honest that's like where I really suck and I've always really sucked at making po this podcast um but yeah thank you so much for all your support everybody so let's crack on this episode is um 
a fruity one, and it's called Ben and Dante, Anti-Witches and the Inquisition. The roots of the Inquisition belong in Rome, where heresy was considered a form of treason punishable by death. However, the popular Inquisition as we know it did not officially exist until the 13th century. Throughout the two centuries before its official founding in law in 1227, the practice of burning heretics was, of course, a popular pastime, at times sanctioned by officials and plenty of others, carried out by the whims of mob justice, when loosely organised crowds of locals would unceremoniously pull suspected heretics from prison cells and lead them to the stake. By the late 12th century, the Roman church had made note of the goings-on and decided to take action in an attempt to both popularise and standardise the practice of crushing those that held opposing beliefs. Pope Lucius III issued a decree in 1184 that stated that any heretics, as well as those that sought to defend them, were at the mercy of a secular judge who would dish out a punishment worthy of their crimes. Of course, such an operation would prove to be costly, and as such, anyone found to be suspect of heresy would have their property and land relinquished from them by the church in order to ensure the running costs were covered. It was a cosy little stitch-up for the Roman church, and much of the ideas laid out in Pope Lucius III's decree found its way into canon law when the Inquisition was made official 30 years later as a response to growing movements of splinter religious groups throughout Europe. Groups like the Catharists, a Christian splinter that believed in Gnostic revival and the idea that there existed two opposing gods of good and evil, found themselves hunted by a new breed of Inquisitor, bent on stamping out those of differing points of view, all justified by a newfound zeal for following archaic laws in the Old Testament that had been ignored for centuries prior. A series of crusades formed in order to rout out Qatars in southern France as an early precursor to the Inquisition and to give a sharp insight into the minds of the people involved during the sacking of Béziers on 22nd of June 1209, where 20,000 citizens were swiftly murdered by crusaders, the question of what to do with the remaining Catholics was put to Papal Legate Arnaud. His reply came simply, kill them all, for God knows his own. This attitude, carried directly into the Inquisitor's beginnings as heretics across France, found themselves routinely burned wholesale, and torture became an officially authorised tactic by Pope Innocent IV. Becoming a largely independent authority, the Inquisitors had only to answer to the Pope, and with such autonomy, they ran roughshod through the countryside, trying whoever they liked, whenever they liked, for whatever they liked. Right up until the end of the 15th century, the Inquisition remained heavily focused on ridding the world of the Qatars, who had found their name being entirely synonymous with the term heretic itself. Along the way, several other groups had also fallen foul, including the Templar, Jews and the Valdensians, and frankly, anyone else they fancied. By the mid-16th century, however, a new threat was found with the Protestants, who would occupy a large portion of the Inquisition's efforts over the coming centuries. Hundreds of thousands of Jews, Muslims and Protestants across Spain were executed, suppressed and chased out in one of the Inquisition's darkest chapters. In general, the process of the Inquisition was largely routine. The Inquisitor would show up in an area with his entourage of bodyguards and foot soldiers, preach the sin of heresy in a public speech to a town or village, and then put in place a grace period, which could span from between one to four weeks. Throughout this period, heretics were encouraged to come forward and confess their sins, which led to a greatly reduced punishment. It also acted as a perfectly fine way to extract the names of the local heretics who were not so forthcoming. As can be expected, this was quickly abused, and both business and personal rivalries made false accusations a common theme which many inquisitors gave little mind to care about. Once the grace period was over, the accused and suspected would be one by one called to the inquisitor's office, where they were interrogated and encouraged to confess. In a handbook for inquisitors written by Nicholas Emmerich, entitled Inquisitorium Directorum, guidance was given on how these interrogations should be carried out. The inquisitor should behave in a friendly manner, and act as though he already knows the whole story. He should glance at his papers and say, it is quite clear you are not telling the truth, or should pick up a document and look surprised, saying, 
How can you lie to me like this when what I have written down here contradicts everything you say? He should then continue, just confess. You can see that I know the whole story already. When sentence of torture has been given and while the executioner is preparing to apply it, the inquisitor and the grave persons who assist him should make fresh attempts to persuade the accused to confess the truth. The executioners and their assistants, while stripping him, should affect uneasiness, haste and sadness, endeavouring thus to instil fear into his mind. And when he is stripped naked, the inquisitors should take him aside, exhorting him to confess and promising him his life upon condition of his doing so, provided that he is not a relapsed, one dilated a second time, because, in such a case, they cannot promise him that. After the interrogations, suspects were held for trial. They were never told the names of their accusers, nor were they given much in the way of rights whatsoever. They were not allowed to call witnesses in their own defence, nor were they allowed to have counsel. They were asked for a list of people who may bear them some ill will, and if their accusers were found to be on the list, they were at times allowed to walk free. If they admitted guilt, likewise, they were often given greatly reduced sentences, something which would be doubly true if they were also to furnish the Inquisitor with a list of names of other potential heretics. Often, however, when heretical suspects would not admit their sins or confess to their guilt, they would find themselves jailed, their assets stripped, and their bodies burned at the stake. Those who were repentant in their final moments were afforded the luxury of being garroted before burned, but for the more obstinate in their innocence, burning them while still alive would be just fine. In Italy, the Inquisition was marginally less brutal than its neighbours in Spain, and by the mid-15th century had found much of its time being taken up by suspects of heresy accused of superstition and magic, and whilst the official line was that no man must lower himself by showering toleration towards heretics of any kind, a line trumpeted by Cardinal Giovanni Carafa in 1542, the truth was that many of the Italian inquisitors were a sceptical bunch. A great many of the trials that took place over the hundreds of years throughout the inquisitorial operation were meticulously recorded and notated. Nowadays, much of this record sits locked away from the public in private or religious archives, but still many have seeped into public access, either through being sold, stolen, or gradually opened up. And within these old manuscripts, a vast tapestry of social and folk history is spun, with over 40% of the latter Italian trials focusing on superstitions as it did, numerous tales of witches, fortune tellers and strange cults rooted in ancient folk beliefs have come to the attention of modern readers. One such group was the Benandanti from Northern Italy, a group that had been entirely forgotten for centuries and of whose actions were nothing short of the fantastic. The Friuli region of Italy lies in the northeastern extreme of the country, bordering Slovenia to the east, Austria to the north, and the Adriatic Sea to the south. It sits 100 miles to the northeast of Venice. In 1575, although it had several cities, including the politically powerful capital of Udine, that was held under Venetian control, it was also home to many isolated rural towns, hamlets and communes, with vast mountainous areas in the north and a landscape that was carved through by rivers and valleys that would at times flood and become impassable, sometimes for months at a time. The story of the Benandanti begins in the small village of Brazzano, with a local priest named Don Bartolomeo Sabriza. The priest had stumbled upon a local rumour that in the neighbouring village of Iasco, a man named Paolo Gasparuto had been able to cure a fellow villager who was thought to have been bewitched by a woman who was suspected as a witch due to her eating meat on a Friday. The rumours went even further when they claimed too that Paolo was gallivanting around at night in the company of witches and goblins. Naturally, this piqued the priest's interest, and so he promptly called Paolo to his church in order for him to meet him and question him on the rumours. Sensing the danger of the religious authorities, Paolo was quick to deny the claims. He told the priest that whilst he had been helping a miller to cure his sick son, he had merely suggested an old folk belief that he could have been possessed by witches and had given the miller a protective charm to calm his fears. Paolo had so far played his cards close to his chest, but then in an exposition of some flair, 
He went on to explain that he was certainly not a witch, as some had claimed. In fact, he regularly fought battles against the witches, both in order to protect the villagers and their crops. Furnishing the priest with more details, he then explained that the miller's young son had been on the brink of death when he was saved by a group known as the Benandanti. This group, he went on. On Thursdays, during the ember days of the year, they were forced to go with the witches to many places, such as Cormon, in front of the church at Iasco, and even into the countryside about Verona. They fought, played, leapt about and rode various animals, and did different things among themselves, and the women beat the men who were with them with sorghum stalks, while the men had only bunches of fennel. Concerned about what he had heard, priest Sabriza journeyed to the city of Sivadale to consult with the local inquisitor on the 7th of April, 1575. Along the way, he chanced a meeting with Paolo, who took him along to the inquisitor's office. Some may have felt a twinge of concern after being picked up by a priest and asked to visit the inquisitor's office, but Paolo was all cheer. Instead, he continued on with his story, seemingly unafraid of the inquisitor, Giulio de Sisi. Sometimes they go out to one country region and sometimes to another, perhaps to Gradicia or even as far away as Verona, and they appear together jousting and playing games, and the men and women who are the evildoers carry and use the sorghum stalks which grow in the fields, and the men and women who are Ben and Dante, they use the fennel stalks, and they go now one day and now another, but always on Thursdays, and when they make their great displays, they go to the biggest farms and they have days fixed for this, and when the warlocks and witches set out, it is to do evil, and they must be pursued by the Benandanti to thwart them. When the witches and warlocks and Benandanti return from these games, all hot and tired, as they pass in front of the houses, when they find clean, clear water in pails, they drink it. If not, they also go into cellars and overturn all the wine. Along with tipping over the wine, Many of the witches and warlocks were also known to urinate in the casks. This, he said, is the reason that one must always have a pail of clean water in their house. For their part, it was the job of the so-called Benandanti, a term which directly translates as the good walkers, to stop the witches and warlocks from running riot throughout the town and to make sure they left the people's wine alone. The Benandanti were there to prevent evil, he promised. When the miller was called upon for questioning, He reiterated the story that Paolo had attempted to cure his son and had told him that he had been bewitched. He told the Inquisitor all that he had heard from Paolo regarding the Benedanti, including the new details that some of the benevolent witches rode into battle with the witches and warlocks on the backs of horses, whilst others rode in on the back of hares, rabbits and cats. He told me that when he goes to these games, his body stayed in bed and the spirit went forth and that while he was out, If someone approached the bed where he lay and called to it, it would not answer, nor could he get it to move, even if he should try for a hundred years. If the sleeping Benandanti did not return to their bodies after 24 hours, Paolo told the miller that they would then become Maladonte, a peculiar inverse Benandante who ate children. Finally, the miller gave up one other piece of important information, that he had heard a rumour that a man named Battista Maduccio an official living in Sividale was also well known as a Benedonti. This was an incredible tale. Paolo was telling both the priest and the local inquisitor that as a Benedonti, he would stride into battle with bunches of fennel and fight against witches and warlocks, themselves armed with stalks of sorghum, a corn-like crop, in order to stop them from doing evil deeds. It was with some luck that the inquisitor found it too much to believe. Despite Paolo's adamance that he was telling the truth, even going as far as to invite the priest to join him for the next gathering. When asked who the other members of the Benandonti were, Paolo only told him that they were men from the local region, in the towns of Brazzano, Iasco, Corman, Gorizia, and Sividale, but he refused to name any specific names. Rather than focus on the demonic elements of the story, much of which should have been considered as really quite heretical, the Inquisitor instead dismissed the whole thing and sent Paolo and the priest away. About a week passed since the questioning in front of the Inquisitor, after which the priest continued to ask about the town of Paolo in an attempt to find out more details about the Benedonti. 
As it turned out, Paolo was not shy at all about who he had told of his escapades. It was a well-known fact that he was a Benandonte to the locals, who all told the priest that he freely admits to anyone with whom he has the occasion to speak, even taking an oath on it. For five years, Paolo continued unchecked, battling witches and warlocks in the fields and presumably telling everyone all about it. By 1580, however, a new inquisitor had taken charge of the region, Fra Felice de Montefalco, and after stumbling upon the unclosed and unfinished case of Paolo Gasparuto, decided to revive the interrogation and resolve the puzzling affair of the Benedonti. He called Paolo to the Holy Office once more, and at the same time contacted the second Benedonti who had been named at the time, Battista Maduccio. Unsurprisingly, Paolo was first to respond to the summons, and he made his way to Cividale, where the Inquisitor de Montefalco was stationed, on the 27th of June, 1580. Upon the opening of his interrogation, he told the Inquisitor that he was not aware why he had been summoned. The Inquisitor jumped quickly into the matter, asking him if he knew of any witches, or of any Benedonti. In stark contrast to his earlier interrogation, however, he now flatly denied knowing any witches at all, and he simply laughed at the question of the Benedonti, replying, Father, no, I really do not know. I am not a Benedonti. That is not my calling. He even denied ever hearing of any bewitched child from his village, claiming not to have heard of the miller's son. The Inquisitor pressed him on the issue, and after several questions, he did eventually admit that he had told the previous Inquisitor that he had had dreams of fighting with witches and continued to laugh off the Inquisitor's further questions. When asked why he was laughing so much, he gave the cocky response, Because these are not things to inquire about, because they are against the will of God. You are asking about things which I know nothing about. The Inquisitor went on, pushing and questioning if Paolo had ever spoken to the priest, the Inquisitor, various villages, about the existence of Benandonte and if he'd invited them along to a gathering if they wished, which Paolo denied flatly. At the end of the questioning, the Inquisitor reminded him that he should be truthful if he wished to be treated with mercy, and he was placed in custody. Later that day, Battista Moduccio too appeared before Fra Feliz de Montefalco, stating that he had no idea why he had been summoned. He assured the entire room that he knew of no heretics, and when asked whether he knew any witches or Benedonti, he replied, probably more smartly than Paolo, of witches, I do not know if there are any, and of Benandante, I do not know of any others beside myself. He then went on to explain to the Inquisitor what he meant by being a Benandante. I am a Benandante because I go with the others to fight four times a year, that is, during the ember days, at night. I go invisibly in spirit and the body remains behind. We go forth in the service of Christ and the witches of the devil. We fight each other, we with bundles of fennel, and they with sorghum stalks. And if we are the victors, that year there is abundance, but if we lose, there is famine. The ember days that Maduccio mentioned were four periods of week-long fasting that were acknowledged by the Catholic calendar, loosely corresponding with the changing of each season, when thanks and prayer were offered to God for the gifts of nature. These practices were originally a series of much older celebrations and holidays, that the church absorbed into its own tradition when it sought to gain an original foothold in Europe. Maduccio had gone a step further than Paolo in his insights, linking the Benedonti with a divine mission to protect the coming crops. He also went on to explain that a person enters into the fold of the Benedonti at the age of 20 and serves for 20 years, at which time he is free to leave if he so wishes. For his part, he assured the Inquisitor that he had not taken part in any battles with the group for more than eight years. The Inquisitor was interested, and he pressed on, asking Maduccio, who was enlisted into this mysterious military structure. All those who have been born with the call belong to it, and when they reach the age of twenty, they are summoned by means of a drum, the same as soldiers, and they are obliged to respond. The call that Maduccio spoke of is a rare condition of being born with the birth membrane wrapped around the head, face and sometimes shoulders. Thought to occur in one in every 80,000 births, it is relatively uncommon and throughout folklore has been seen as a sign of good fortune and good luck, 
and many parents keep the cool after it had been removed in order to pass it on to their child after it had grown up. This child would then keep it as a lucky charm, while some did choose to sell them at high prices to sailors and soldiers who highly valued them as good luck charms. Just as his predecessor once had been when questioning Paolo, Inquisitor de Montefalco incredulously reminded Maduccio that he must tell the truth. If he hoped for less fantastical tales, his hints were outright ignored, as Maduccio just went on to describe the being that called them to the company during the Ember days along with his own company. While some of Paolo's original descriptions of the battles were almost quaint in their nature, these elucidations from Maduccio told of how the battles were not always such simple, small-scale, LARPing affairs. The witches and warlocks which they fought were quoted to be in the thousands, with a figure ranging from 3,000 to 5,000 and more. Both armies were accompanied by banner carriers as well as buglers and drummers who stood firm, noisily supporting their side, whilst the vegetarian clashes saw shreds of abandoned fennel and sorghum litter the herbaceous battlefield below like a twisted antipasto salad. The banner carrier, seen alongside the company of Benandante, was described as a man carrying a large standard made of white silk stuff that was gilded with a golden lion. The banner of the witches and warlocks, in comparison, was crafted of red silk, and rather than lions, had an insignia of four black devils. Each side was led into the battle by their captain, the same man who had originally given each member his orders to answer the call when they had officially begun their journey as a Benandante. His captain, he told the Inquisitor, was a man of 28 years old, very tall, pale-complexioned, red-bearded and of noble birth with a wife. In contrast, the captain of the witches and warlocks was black-bearded, big and tall, and from the German nation. In the fighting that we do, one time we fight over the wheat and all the other grains, another time over the livestock, and at other times over the vineyards, and so on. On four occasions we fight over all the fruits of the earth, and for those things won by the Benandante, that year there is abundance. The Inquisitor had heard enough, and he closed the questioning, asking Maduccio to name other Benandante or witches. However, Maduccio replied that he was unable to give names, as he had taken a lifelong pact as a Benandante not to name the names of either group. The Inquisitor was sly, however, and reminded them that if he had left the company, as he had said, then he was no longer subject to any pact. Reluctantly, Maduccio furnished the Inquisitor with the names of two witches. The first, he said, was a woman who had dried up the milk of some animals. Unlike Paolo, Maduccio was then dismissed from the interrogation, though he was asked to not leave the vicinity in the near future in case there was a need to summon him again. The next day, after 24 hours in the inquisitorial prison, Paolo was recalled to the Inquisitor to see if he might have had his tongue loosened. When the interrogation opened, Inquisitor de Montefalco asked him, have you thought better about speaking the truth than before? To which Paolo replied, yes father, and I will tell it rightly. Paolo then went on to admit that he was himself a Benedante, though he had left his company four years prior. When asked for his reasons for lying the day before, he told the Inquisitor, I was afraid of the witches who would have attacked me in bed and killed me. He then went on to explain that when he was called to the company to fight for the Benandante, a peasant from Vicenza had summoned him in his sleep and he had been able to reply through his spirit. Strangely, Paolo's company was only six men deep, significantly smaller than Manduccio's, which he had said had numbered into the thousands. However, the manner of the fighting the fennel and the sorghum, and the colour of the banner was apparently just the same, including the details that there was a lion gilded into it. His captain too was a man from Verona with a red beard, though Paolo believed that he was perhaps a peasant and not a man of any noble birth. He was then asked if he knew the names of any of the members of his fellow company members, which at first he denied. However, after some pressing, he gave up two names to the Inquisitor, though both were vague descriptions of peasants living some distance from the Holy Office. The Inquisitor then dismissed Paolo, asking him to reappear in 20 days' time. This order was, of course, promptly ignored by Paolo, and so, on the 24th of September, he was rounded up and imprisoned to await a further audience with the Inquisitor. 
Two days later, Paolo was once again back in front of Inquisitor de Montefalco to face his questioning. Once again, Paolo had decided to alter his story, giving it a much more Christian bent this time, probably in the vain hope that if he had done so, the Inquisitor would drop the entire trial and allow him to get back to his life. This time he told the Inquisitor that he had been called to the Benedonti by a golden angel who had appeared before him at night whilst he had slept. The angel told him that he was called to fight for the crops. The mention of angels, however, appeared to have quite the opposite effect, as the Inquisitor seemed to believe that the angel was perhaps a trick of the devil, and in fact a demonic being. He continued to question Paolo, asking him if he appeared on a throne and if he was offered food, women and dancing by the angel as a reward for their work. Paolo was relatively fast to cotton on to the Inquisitor's line of questioning and he quickly began to assure him in his answers that it was the witches he fought who were the devils on thrones and who dance and leap about. Our angel is beautiful and white, he assured him. Theirs is black and is the devil. Paolo's questioning was promptly wrapped up and he was once again returned to his cell. Further questioning began six days later on the 1st of November. This time, Paolo's wife was summoned to speak to the Inquisitor, though she denied knowledge of anything relating to the possibility that her husband was a Benedonti, only admitting that once, when she had tried to wake him one night, he had been impossible to rouse from sleep. After this story, she returned to denying all knowledge of anything further and was eventually dismissed. Two days later again, now the 3rd of November, Paolo was back in interrogation. This time, he told the court of his coming to know that he was a Benedonti. About a year before the angel appeared to me, my mother gave me the call in which I had been born, saying that she had had it baptised with me, and that had nine masses said over it, and had had it blessed with certain prayers and scriptural readings. And she told me that I was born a Benedonti, and that when I grew up, I would go forth at night, and that I must wear it on my person, and that I would go with the Benedonti to fight the witches. Though his story was now changing once more, he told the Inquisitor that he had come to believe that the visiting angel was perhaps, as suggested by the Inquisitor, a diabolic being sent to trick him. The trials of both Meduccio and Paolo had drawn to a close. The Inquisitor called both before him one last time to carry out their sentencing for having been caught up in numerous perversities and heresies. So great was your audacity and so small your fear of God that you dared to affirm before us that to reveal the names of the witches and Benedonti was to go against divine will. And you also declared that you believed and firmly held that these impious games were permitted by God and that you fought for God. Similarly, you asserted that you seriously believed that the captain under whom you went these games had been placed there by God. And so on and on. The list of heresies were long and the speech given was longer. Eventually, both men were sentenced to six months in prison, told to fast over the ember days for two years, and told to confess their sins four times a year for five years. Lastly, both men were ordered to hand over their cause to the Holy Office in order that they be destroyed by burning. While seemingly harsh, the sentences were in fact relatively light for the Inquisition, and they were soon made much lighter when a few days later, after begging for forgiveness, both men were excused of their sentence entirely and instead ordered only to stay within the boundaries of Civadale for two weeks. After the trial of Paolo Gasparuto and Battista Matuccio, there were several other trials concerning Benedonti that spanned over the next 100 years. Interestingly, as the time passed, so too did the beliefs and practices of the Benedonti themselves. One of the primary changes was that of the point of the Benedonti. In earlier trials, they were fighting with the witches and warlocks in order to ensure good harvest and healthy crops, but the later trials lent more and more heavily towards the concept that the Benedonte were fighting their vegetable fuel battles in order to protect the local children from demonic harm. During the trial of another Benedonte, Florida Basili, in 1599, she claimed that she could see the dead, a belief that was reflected in the trial of Bella La Rosa another suspect in a trial that had taken place 18 years earlier, where Bella claimed that she could both see and communicate with the dead. In both cases, the trials had led to dead ends, with both women eventually released from questioning 
and their trials falling away into obscurity. In 1582, the trial of Caterina Laguercia, an elderly woman from Cividale, was another Benedonte who claimed to use charms to cure sickness in the local children, and in 1600, an account was given to the Holy Office of an old woman named Pescuta Agrigalante who claimed to fight in battles with witches both to secure good crop harvests and cure sick children. Pescuta would leave her body during the night and her spirit would travel to the battles riding a hare who would collect her at the appropriate time by creating a great clatter with its paws on her door until she opened it and went with the spirit animal. In later trials, Benedonti gave evidence that their spirit would leave their body in the form of small animals, with mice being a recurring theme, as well as butterflies. Although the stories of the Benedonti shifted over time, the nighttime spirit battles were always a staple, core part of the suspect's belief. By 1670, the Inquisitors, who saw little difference between the Benedonti and the evil witches and warlocks they spoke about, had slowly pressured many to turn their back on their beliefs, assuming them to be diabolic in origin, and so, over time, the Benedonti found themselves being assimilated into the realm of the witches that they once claimed to struggle against. The knock-on effect of this was a complete loss of purpose amongst the group, and slowly, as the years ticked by, the number who claimed to be of the call steadily declined. Those of the Benedonti who were left began drawing harsher and harsher lines between themselves and the witches. In the beginning, the witches and warlocks were almost seen as honourable enemies, but by the latter period of the trials, many began attacking them violently during their interrogations and in public life too. The local Benedante embarked upon something of a PR exercise, where they would emphasise themselves as benevolent, casting healing spells on sick children and protecting the crops. At the same time, they began playing up the evil stereotypes of witches that had come to saturate the European witch trials abroad. This, however, appeared to backfire, when eventually, as the Inquisition continued to mostly ignore the tall claims of the Benedonte, and the villagers grew weary of the discord that the Benedonte sowed amongst those individuals they accused as the evil witches, the group found itself falling further and further out of favour. Perhaps surprisingly, given the Inquisition's history and strong reputation for widespread violence and abuse, the Inquisitors of Friuli were remarkably lenient in regards not only to the Benedante, but witchcraft and superstition and magic in general. Despite the fact that by the turn of the 17th century, over 40% of all trials overseen by the Inquisitors were based in matters of magic and supernatural, the trial of Paolo Gasparuto and Battista Maduccio was the only trial of suspected Benedonti that would ever even reach a conclusion. Of the dozens of other trials, most became long, drawn-out affairs that meandered into obscurity, with the suspects only being told to stay in the area and to attend the court at a latter date if called upon. This lax attitude towards the Benedonti was reflected throughout the vast majority of superstitious or supernatural cases, with many ending with punishments or penances of short-time incarcerations. Even the case of Paolo Maduccio, relatively early on in the Benedonti timeline, had seen their sentences quickly withdrawn. So what exactly was going on here? Why was it that a religious body formed from the sole purpose of hunting out, exposing and punishing heretics were being so lenient with cases which, across various faiths in all other areas of Europe, and even in other areas of Italy, fell directly under the banner of gross heresy. The answer is likely several layers deep, but first and foremost is the fact that the inquisitors of the Friuli simply had bigger fish to fry. Whilst the stories of the Benedonti, witches and warlocks were certainly off kilter with an orthodox point of view, they were not deemed as a threat to Catholicism in the same strength that Protestantism or Catharism were. A further explanation falls on the attitudes of the Inquisitors of Friuli, both in regards to the practices carried out and of magic on a wider scale. Truthfully, much of the practices carried out by the Benedonti could be seen reflected within Christian practices, which had over the past centuries incorporated many of the traditional pagan beliefs into its own method and calendar, praying over crops or sprinkling holy water in order to protect the harvest, and holding spiritual ceremonies and mass on special days in order to ensure the health of the crop for the year. 
whilst poor crop yields were often blamed on the past sins of the locals. Whilst differing in execution, both the Catholics and the Benandanti were seeking to enlist spiritual practices for the same ends. Perhaps more importantly, however, was the contradictory beliefs of the Inquisitors themselves. Coming from a higher class of society, the Inquisitors were men of education and learning, and much of the feeling when coming into contact with traditional folktales of magic and witches from rural communities was a certain degree of piteous contempt and a heavy dose of scepticism. Many of the questions asked in the trials of the Benandanti would have been posed with a raised eyebrow, and many suspects were simply dismissed after the Inquisitors had deemed them as either mentally unstable, harmless profiteers, or as simple fantasists. Cases of local healers and diviners were frequently seen as older, poor women aiming to make a small side profit and dismissed, while stories of Benandanti springing through the fields at midnight on the back of spirit animals were incredulously notated. An example of the attitude of the time amongst the educated classes towards rural folk healers can be seen in a letter written by a Friulian priest in 1582 who, in a damning account of the Inquisitors overstretching, wrote, The Inquisitors are seeking to prosecute certain poor women who, under the pretext of healing and being paid a little money for it, were using some superstitious practices that had nothing to do with heresy. Strangely, while stories like this were treated with leniency and the stories of the Benandanti were seen as far-fetched and more often than not simply hand-waved away, the Inquisitors were still deeply interested in the names of the witches and warlocks that the Benandanti were fighting. Somewhere down the line, the magic of the demonic witches was seen as more believable than the magic of the benevolent Benandanti. Though technically, if the laws were being followed, both belonged firmly in the category of serious and unquestionable heresy. So was it just a case that the Benandanti were simply not seen as an active enough threat to the church to bother with? As the trials passed on and on, and the suspected Benandanti began to change their views both of witches and of themselves, the efforts of the Inquisitors to frame them as witches became easier and easier, and it worked to place them within an understandable and, importantly, punishable framework. The Benandanti slowly found themselves willfully walking into extinction, as their own beliefs eroded and they began accepting the inquisitorial line, even going as far as admitting to cavorting with the devil and spitting on the cross. It was, in a sense, a subtle effort that, despite being driven by indifference, slowly worked to rid the rural villagers of their unorthodox beliefs and bring them back into the Roman Catholic fold. The theories about precisely what the Benedenti were are, as one might expect, numerous and wide-ranging, from deluded folk stories to shamanistic rites. One of the more interesting theories subscribes to the possibility that the Benedanti were an ancient folk group who would smear themselves with ointment before bed, which would lead them to having hallucinogenic dreams, a practice seen amongst the claimed witches of Spain who would use certain ointments and creams in order to allow their spirit to leave their physical body. The largest problem with this theory was that amongst all the trials, only two ever mentioned any sort of oil being used, and one of those in 1591 was simple lamp oil. A second trial mentioned only oils and creams, but no further detail was provided. With none of the other Benandanti ever mention it, it seems unlikely that it was a ritualistic practice amongst the group. Carlo Ginsberg, the first historian to uncover the trial transcripts mentioning the Benandanti, theorised in his book The Night Battles, published in 1966, that the group were the unbroken remnants of an ancient agrarian fertility cult that had its origins throughout Europe and who all worshipped a similar female goddess, though under various names such as Diana the Roman patroness of hunters, the Roman goddess Venus, Pector, a German or Austrian pagan goddess, and Holder, a character from the German folk legend. Although his interpretation had caused controversy in the years since publication, with many failing to see enough evidence of a central belief system, many scholars have since suggested variations on the same theme, theorising that the Benedonti instead were looser remnants of pre-Christian beliefs, originating from the Balkans, Hungary and Romania, as well as links further afield throughout Europe to other folk myths and legends. These various characters also fought against evil witches and warlocks to protect crops, but many under different guises and for different reasons. 
One example was Thiess of Kalterbrunn, a werewolf from Swedish Livonia who, in 1692, was tried for heresy. Throughout his trial, he insisted that he was a hound of God who went to do battle in hell against devils, witches and warlocks three times a year in order to rescue grain and livestock for the local village. So what of the theory that the Benedontes night battles were, in fact, real? At first, this may seem absolutely ridiculous to any rational person out there, but consider for a second that many of the Benedonti were able to describe their captain, often in very similar terms, such as the colour of the man's beard or hair, or the description of the banners held by both the companies of Benedonti and witches. One could make a compelling argument that such details were passed down through oral tradition, but more difficult to square is the fact that many Benedonti trials ended with the suspect naming other witches or Benedonti in faraway areas who they had claimed to meet during the battles. Were they just names pulled from thin air, or were they perhaps names of people they had met in years past? In a region that was notoriously difficult to travel through, it seems very unlikely that they had met them in any real-world, non-spiritual travels. Trying to figure out the truth of the Benedonti is fairly difficult, not only because of the uniquely bizarre stories that they told, but also because of the lack of evidence we have to say what the trialed suspects thought themselves about being a Benedonti. Whilst it is perfectly possible that some were simply profiteering from old traditional folk beliefs, it has to be given serious consideration that a good many firmly believed that they truly went on these journeys and entered into battle with demonic forces. From all the various accounts that tilt on a similar theme, it seems quite likely that Ben and Dante held their roots in older, more widespread beliefs, passed down through generations, mutating as they travelled across Eastern and Central Europe. Faced with so many stories, from the benevolent witch battlers of Paolo and Meduccio to the Livonian werewolf, however, we are somehow left in a similar position to the bemused inquisitors, scratching around in our attempts to twist the peculiar beliefs of the Ben and Dante to conform to our own paradigms. Did they truly fight battles with bunches of fennel striding into battle on the back of a spirit rabbit to protect the local crops? It seems unlikely. But where then did the stories come from? What did the Benedonti believe on a day-to-day basis and how did they view themselves? And why did their stories persist for so many centuries until a finely tuned operation like the Inquisition was able to finally stamp them out of existence? That was the Benedonti, an absolute crazy bunch of folks from Italy. And I absolutely love them. <laughs> uh, we'll be talking a bit about them a little bit more after this short bit of cap. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written and translated by recognized Japan expert, Dr. Heath Avey. Season one relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. Thanks for listening to Dark Histories. This podcast is entirely independent and funded by myself and listener support. So in order to do that, I need to run a few ads. Our long-time advertising partner is Audible, and the reason I've stuck with them for so long is that they offer a service that I actually use and enjoy myself. And I do think it actually offers value to people like myself who enjoy podcasts. If you're unaware of what Audible is, it's an audiobook subscription service which charges a monthly fee in return for one credit, which you're free to spend on any audiobook you like. The catalogue is huge, multilingual and covers everything from fiction to series of lectures. They have an iOS, Android and web app and if you use more than one 
They all sync up together so that you can listen on any of your devices without having to skip about. If you ever feel like you want to take a break from the subscription, you can do so and you get to keep all your previously bought books. And when you get into a drought, you can just fire it up again and start gaining credits seamlessly. Some of my favourite books on there to date are The Complete Sherlock Holmes, which is read by Stephen Fry. And they've also got the original Exorcist book and just a huge history back catalogue. And I've really enjoyed all of those, basically. So if this sounds like something you might be interested in, head over to audible.com forward slash dark histories. And that's dark histories, all one word. And you can start a free trial that offers a monthly subscription with one free credit so that you can instantly pick an audiobook of your choice. If at the end of the trial, you feel like it's not really for you, you can just cancel it and it's cost you nothing and you get to keep your free book. So once again, that's audible.com forward slash dark histories, or you can find the link in the show notes. So earlier I mentioned listener support and there are a ton of ways that you can get involved and support Dark Histories. The main way is to become a Patreon patron. If you listen to a lot of podcasts, I'm sure you're familiar by now, but for those not so much, Patreon is a way to make a monthly pledge in return for some small perks. On the Dark Histories Patreon, I set my pledges as low as I can really with options for one, three and five dollars per month. And for that, You gain things like early access episodes without these horrible ads, PDF notes and resources that I make and find during my research for each episode. There's also access to the live stream archives and more. So if you enjoy the show and you think it's worth it to you, hop over to darkhistories.com and you can find all the ways that you can support, including our Patreon, or just check out the links in the show notes. If none of that appeals, then sharing it around with all your friends and family is equally as helpful and just as much appreciated. So if you're here, then thanks so much for not skipping the ads with that 30 second skip button and giving my hard sell a listen. I'll let you get back to the episode. Cheers. So yeah, that's the Benadonte. What a cracking story. I really like just about everything about them, actually. I really like everything about their stories. I think they're absolutely bonkers. I love the fact that they, the, the original stories from Paolo um, and the other guy was just about striding into the battle on the back of rabbits to fight with sticks of fennel. And you really can't go wrong with that story, can you? It's absolutely beautiful. So of the things to talk about, I mean, I mean, there's a lot to talk about here. One of the things to kind of point out about when you're researching this, it's really thoroughly frustrating, is that, and, and you can only really assume that this is intentional, but the notes of the interrogations, they didn't do it word for word. So they don't tell you the inquisitor's questions word for word at all. They, they, they write it like, for example, questioned, Paolo replied, no, I didn't get up in the morning. So then it's up to you to kind of figure out the question from the context. So, of course, that one's an obvious one that they didn't ask. But, you know, so you can figure out the question for yourself. Paolo, did you get up this morning? You know what I mean? Or what time did you get up? That's what they're asking. But obviously, when you you get much more deep into like weird folk stories and stuff, you're trying to figure out these absolutely bizarre questions from the context of the replies. It means two things. Firstly, it's a pain to do and it's difficult. And you're not quite ever sure if you're really nailing the questions that were asked. But also, it means you don't really get the whole picture of the attitudes of the inquisitors. Because you can only really, you're only really getting what you can infer, which, like I said, I assume that's intentional. I wonder if that's to stop the inquisitors incriminating themselves and leaving like a record of, if they were asking leading questions and things like that. It seems intentional to me, but it's tricky. It makes the whole thing tricky and it doesn't really, it means we don't ever really get the full picture, which is really frustrating. Um, but, but I mean, it goes on. There's, there's all sorts of issues um, to do with the source material with this stuff because it being so old and, and, and done by an organisation that were strangely keen to record everything, but not keen to record everything if you know what I mean. So one of the biggest issues is the source material. And and given that all its primary sources were written by the Inquisition, the biggest problem lies in the fact that 
their lack of concern for the Benedonti and the superstitions was such that the trials, although they got heavily documented, they were sort of written out about in quite a blasé, dismissive attitude. It, this, again, colours the picture quite a lot, along with the fact that there's also a bias in the documents towards the weird things that they were doing because there was like 40% of their inquis- their, their inquisitive inquiries were like about magic and that. So again, it, it does tend to colour the picture, both that the inquisitors were essentially a fairly chilled out bunch of people, which it sounds like in Italy they were, or at least in this area they were a bit more chilled out than other places. But like, you know, like as we know, like, from history that the inquis the inquisition and the inquisitors were not a chilled out bunch you know they were evil but the other thing it does is it also colors the benedonti as a complete bunch of fruit loops which again maybe they were and a lot of their stories are pretty out there but it it doesn't ever really give them any sort of gravity or weight it's very like dismissive and it's all written very dismissive so it's hard to you have to kind of read between the lines and again, like take a lot of things in as it, within their context. It's it makes researching this whole Benedonti thing really quite difficult, but you know, fun at the same time. And but yeah, you know, it, it all sort of falls in line with that idea that you know, although it was heavily documented, it kind of wasn't documented at the same time. And and there's you see this all the way throughout the Inquisition, really. Things like torture, you know, we don't really know what was going on in the cells, so. For example, like when they arrested Paolo, one of the darker moments in the story for me is when it's noted that he was told that he should think better about speaking the truth and then led away to the dungeon, right, to be locked up for the 24 hours before he was questioned again and then his story changed. We don't know what went on in that cell, but it does leave you to, to, you know, knowing the Inquisition, the undertones of that you should think better about speaking the truth is quite chilling really because you know that well we can guess that there was a probable you know it was probable or very high chance that he was not going to be left in his cell to have a little sleep and a bite on some bread you know he was probably going to be taken down there to be tortured (laughs) so yeah it's it's um there's a lot of when you read the original documents there's a lot of like it, it comes across very light and very easy going but it's like when you start kind of thinking about it and sort of scratching below that surface you start going oh yeah no no this isn't as light as it looks is it is this is there's a bit more going on here but it, you know it's all sort of inferred and, and it's all kind of left to, it's, it's what's not said if you like that, that is more dark than actually what is said. Because like, what's said is actually quite above board, relaxed, and, and makes them seem well chilled out. But it's all the things that aren't said that you, you're just kind of left to go, mm, knowing about the Inquisition, I'm not sure this is exactly right. <laughs> so yeah, it's, yeah, but it's a really interesting story. But I'd say a lot of work to, to trawl through the weirdness and the, and, the, and the difficulty and the way it's written, but really interesting. Probably, I think, in terms of this episode and, and also of this discussion bit now and, and perhaps where we might sort of move into more on the live stream where it's a bit more of a casual discussion, but is where do you draw the line and stop? Because realistically, I, I think, so So when we get to theories, like what 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 do you think of the Benedonti? I'm really interested in what you think they are. Um you know, and what your ideas are about them. Um, because for me, I just assumed that they were basically a, a loose group of people that sort of held on to old, very old, like sort of pagan traditions and beliefs that had kind of seeped in to their lives through oral traditions and stuff like that. And of course, if that's the case, and, and it is, that's what I believe, that they're just these old, all these old traditions that were kind of picked up here and there and had persisted in different forms you can just keep researching this literally like almost forever because the, the, there are so many folk beliefs and splinter groups that are all held together by those loose same loose tenuous links you, you could go forever i mean like in just like i showed as an example really in the episode we go from like it 
Italian Ben and Dante who were riding on the backs of spirit rabbits to fight with stalks of fennel to a werewolf who was fighting in hell against the devil's creatures or whatever in Scandinavia, in Sweden, or, you know, in that whole kind of northeastern Europe, northwestern Europe, rather, sorry. So, you know, we're almost going from, you know, one corner of Europe to the other, from one belief that is greatly different to the other belief in its superficialities and the bits that are on top, but all for the same purpose underneath, you know, because they were both there to protect crops and, and all the rest of it. So if you go with these loose links and tenuous ties, there you could literally be researching folk beliefs forever. So I kind of tried to keep this episode sort of like honed in on just that one like idea of the Ben and Dante without getting too far off track because otherwise, yeah, I think it could go forever. But it does, you do need to kind of focus on that a bit to answer what you think they were. I, I, one of the theories that I really like, I'm not, not sure I believe it because like it said that there wasn't really any evidence of it, is that it was almost shamanistic and people would use like ointments on themselves and then go to sleep and kind of basically trip out and have these dreams and you know experiences and and that that's where they come from and i I like that idea i wonder if that's perhaps where they started and they kind of progressed to people just kind of like having faith and sort of fooling themselves a little bit but i really like that idea of the shamanistic thing because for me that makes a lot of logical sense um say it doesn't seem to be the truth so much in the latter period of the benedonte because in all of the, like I say, they, 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 it's very rarely actually spoken of that they even used any of these ointments and creams. And you would think that at least a few of them might have mentioned it if it was widespread, you know, if that's what they were doing definitely. So it doesn't seem like that's what they were doing, which is kind of a shame because I really like that idea. And But I wonder if that's like where it maybe originally came from, you know, if that was like the original beliefs and, and, and practices. Like I say, like those practices just kind of bled over into like oral tradition and these latter kind of Benedonte weren't really having like big trips and great experiences. They were just making it all up for either profit or profiting in some way, like not necessarily financially, but through like the goodwill of the village or, you know, things like that, or even just trying to, you know, promote a little bit of motivation and, and happiness within the village or a bit of hope or whatever in the village. Like maybe they were doing it for, you know, benevolent reasons. Maybe they were doing it for purely selfless reasons you, you never know but i wonder if that's where they originally came from anyway like from these shamanistic ideas and practices and then they, they they sort of evolved into these kind of more ritualistic spiritual sort of faith ideas rather than actual practical mashing up veggies and rubbing them on yourself and tripping out whilst you're in your bed but yeah no really cool stories i really liked it i thought it was great i'd love to hear from you say what, what you think they perhaps were um, and if you know of any stories from your own country that reflect this as well, like get in touch, let me know. Because, um, you know, I, I'm sure that almost every folk belief has like these similar ideas of fighting something or not necessarily fighting like a demonic force or an evil force or whatever, but protecting the crops via the, the, there's, a, there, there's a benevolent kind of spiritual element that that's out to kind of help the crops and and give a good harvest because we see that across so many beliefs right so yeah love to hear your thoughts on it and say if you've got any stories from your own country that you know is like an old kind of folk belief along those lines definitely like let me know i'd love to hear them because they're just they're stories that really fascinate me and and i really love saying it's the one thing that i really it's what kind of got me into doing the looking at the benedonte and eventually this episode so yeah I'll leave it there, I think. Uh, Thanks very much for listening. Please do get in touch. Um, You can do that via my email, which is just contact at darkhistories.com and you can get in touch with me through there. Um, You can also do it through all the social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We're on it. Just search Dark Histories. It's a slightly different variation on each one. I think we're at Dark Histories on Twitter, Dark underscore Histories on Instagram and the Dark Histories podcast on Facebook. So, you know, find us on there. You can find links to all of that in the show notes and also on the website, which is darkhistories.com, along with ways that you can support if you want to. Um, And if you do want to, then that's, you know, great. Thank you very much. That would be much appreciated, but you don't feel like you need to. So yeah, thanks very much for listening. 
take care and stay healthy and, you know, have a great couple of weeks and I'll see you all very, very soon. So thanks very much for listening. Cheers. Sleep tight.